welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This year marks the 20th anniversary of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, a movie that has never been too far from best of lists. But Lynch's three-hour digitally shot follow-up, Inland Empire, which came out five years later, has sometimes gone overlooked. So it was great news to hear that the critic Melissa Anderson had devoted an entire new book to Inland Empire, voyaging into the movie's nightmarish depths. Anderson, who's the film editor at Four Columns, takes the opportunity to appreciate the unique qualities of Laura Dern, who is the star of Inland Empire, and her multi-film collaboration with Lynch. Anderson joined me for this special episode, which partly found me in recovery mode after the movie's haunted story about an actress who finds herself in all kinds of uncharted territory while shooting a new movie. The book is about Inland Empire. I think it's the 15th anniversary, I want to say, of the movie coming out, but it's part of the book is part of a series from Fireflies Press, and uh, the author is none other than Melissa Anderson. Hello. Hello, Nicholas Rapold. Thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. Well, thank you for thank you for coming. It's 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 a it's it ain't much, but uh, I, as I was just saying just before we started, I, I have to thank you for giving me the occasion and, and kind of forcing me to watch this movie again. Uh, maybe you can talk about the first time you saw it, and maybe it was the same occasion, but I saw it last. Uh, now it can be told at the press screening in 2006 uh, at the New York Film Festival, or before it, I guess. And mm-hmm. I, I remember emerging, you know, blinking outside, I think with a couple of, you know, doughty reverse shot correspondents who immediately starts, started, you know, talking about it and analyzing it, and I was not ready. So I think I kind of slunk away at that point. Mm-hmm. With that. So I'm very glad to have, to have steeled myself to watch it again. Mm-hmm. And... Well, may the interviewee ask the interviewer a question. When oh, when you did when you did revisit it, what was the experience like? It was also spooky. Um, it was it was quite uh, unnerving the first time. The second time, maybe because it didn't have the same amount of buildup, it didn't mm-hmm. have the same. I mean, we, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this. It didn't have the same feeling of a rupture, uh, mm-hmm. just because. At that point, you know, partly the digital look of it and, and partly just the unmitigated uh, free associative quality of it, or just more kind of, what would be the word, like mise on a beam kind of quality mm-hmm. of it was, mm-hmm. was, so knowing that going in, I was a bit more prepared to go back into the funhouse. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I remembered at all where, you know, the particular jumps uh, were and, and, and all that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I saw it, I think it, it hit me in a different, um, frightening way, but it's hard to replicate that kind of initial terror. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And most of my, I mean, I obviously had to revisit Inland Empire multiple times and the first draft of the monograph was written mainly between March 2020 to August of 2020, which, as I mentioned, toward the end of this small book that I've written, was a terrifying time across the globe. And so, and my mental health 
as for many people, was tenuous at best. And so, yes, having having to revisit this deranging film over and over again to write about it was <clears throat> further destabilizing, but maybe in in a productive way. I'm not certain. I mean, it may, maybe I needed to feel really kind of undone to be able to write about it. I'm not sure. Yeah. No, that that sounds uh, yeah absolutely full of dread uh, to to watch it in that in that way. You know, because part of the movie's feel is that you're in some long tunnel from which you never emerge, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that was definitely my experience of uh, mm-hmm. last <laughs> that period you you just described. Right. So yeah, that's almost an, an appropriate mood to be in. I was thinking, you know jokingly my introduction to talking about this movie would be it was the second semester it was the second term of, of the bush administration you know? <laughs> you know, it's it's you know i mean i mean maybe in a way that that was part of it that it's it's just this kind of i don't know creed occur from the perspective of, of, of david lynch through the lens of hollywood in other words mm-hmm. um but you know just just it's just as horrifying. I mean, I don't want to. I feel I just keep on saying horrifying or terrifying, but I mean, maybe we can back up a bit. I mean, I'm curious. The premise of the series is that it's a selection of movies from the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think they're making a claim that this is a canon or or something like that. I think it's no, not at all. Yeah. So, what led you to choose Inland Empire, and did you at any time regret that you had chosen <laughs> chosen it? No, it's interesting. I never regretted the decision, but when I was first contacted by Annabelle Brady Brown, who is one of the two geniuses behind Fireflies Press, I knew that I had to pick a film that I wouldn't mind revisiting over and over again. So yeah, I guess my my selection was rather perverse, knowing how terrifying and destabilizing the movie is. Well, I also knew that my point of entry into the film, I knew that I I was never going to write an exegetical text. That never would my was my task going to be. I'm going to explain and decode this baffling film. I, I knew instantly that what I wanted to talk about was Laura Dern. That to talk about her not just in this film, but in her other work with Lynch and also in other movies that she did that have nothing to do with Lynch. Yeah. And to take, I mean, ever since the MoMA curator and and film critic Dave Kerr introduced the term actorism, I guess with a MoMA series that began in 2014, I just found it to be such an incredible, incredibly helpful way to think about my particular passions, fetishes when when talking about film. So I, I, I knew that to revisit Laura Dern's performance in Inland Empire and Laura Dern's wider filmography would be a great pleasure. Yeah, that's, it's such a great way to look at the movie and reflect upon and refract upon, if that's a word, um, mm-hmm. the movie, because she is such a nexus uh, in a way mm-hmm. uh, in, in his work. And also, you know, given the Hollywood milieu, but also just her 
you know, her, I guess her, uh, she's, she's a kind of uh, royalty in, in a sense. In, in having right, right. Um, so there's all that. And then one thing that really struck me watching it again is you, you write about her, her face and her ability to convey, just to kind of be completely consumed by emotion and, mm-hmm. it, you know, almost becoming like the tragedy mask. And that struck me so much watching this that she, there are so many moments where also you don't know if she's going to be laughing or crying as her face is contorted. Mm-hmm. Um, just having that instrument and, and, and kind of centering uh, the book on, on her, uh, I, I don't know, I thought that was also a way of getting to the movie that, you know, as you said, wasn't going to be an exegesis. It's a, yeah, it's a more direct emotional way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whatever else Lynch's films are, they are fundamentally, they contain vast pools of emotion. Yeah. You know, I mean, one, one way that the movie can be challenging to watch is because it's a movie where he almost, he just kind of throws off any constraints he might've felt he had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, coming after Mulholland Drive, uh, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, ended up being canonized, I know how to speak, mm-hmm. um, canonized at, for the decade, but obviously with the time was quite divisive and, mm-hmm. you know, not immediately digestible because it wasn't immediately digestible. But this is, you know, one step further, you know, it's, it's three hours, it's, it's, it's digital and tight close-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, for most or much of it, that's also, I mean, struck me just the, the way that it is so uh, unrelenting. Yeah, it's murky. Oftentimes it's quite physically difficult to look at, but your mentioning of Mulholland Drive made me think of, you know, another interesting way to think about Inland Empire. It was I believe it was Manola Dargis who, when she was reviewing Inland Empire for the for the New York Times, called it Mulholland Drive's evil twin. So these two films are conjoined mm. in a way, even though Mulholland Drive ends with its protagonist's suicide, there is something, at least in the first half, the, the wish fulfillment part of Mulholland Drive, there's something so hopeful about it. Whereas... Inland Empire is is bleak and dark consistently. But I do like thinking of these films as a diptych of, of Lynch's. And I've, I've always found Lynch, Lynch to always be, perhaps in a very sick and dark way, to be have, have a great deal of empathy toward his bruised and tortured female protagonists. And uh, I liked thinking of that concept or of that theme in Inland Empire, and especially when thinking of Inland Empire vis-a-vis Mulholland Drive. Yeah, that kind of brings back to why Laura Dern is a perfect collaborator for him, because she reliably is able to convey the shock over what is happening to her characters. Right. Um, and and that's that's not something that every every actress can do. I mean, sometimes I wonder, I sort of step out of watching it for a second, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm still shocked by Laura Dern's shock face. You know? <laughs> it's just, she always, she just bypasses any kind of skepticism or analysis uh, with, with what she does. And 
that yeah, that's quite remarkable. And I mean, and it's interesting comparing that directness with with Mulholland Drive, which I guess kind of lets down your defenses a bit just by following this recognizable, you know, ingenue kind mm-hmm. of plot. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas whereas Inland Empire, you're beginning with, I guess, an established actress. So it's kind of interesting that they start at different points. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as Mulholland Drive does fall, as you just said, a somewhat familiar arc in that it is about a, a Hollywood hopeful. But at that time, Naomi Watts and Laura Lena Herring were practically unknown. And then there's that astounding moment midway through Mulholland Drive during Betty Elms's audition scene. So that also creates a kind of Hall of Mirrors effect where it's not only the character Betty Elms, who's dazzling everybody, but it's the actress, Naomi Watts, who's awing all the spectators in the film. Whereas Laura Dern, yeah, her task is the inverse, but certainly just as, if not more challenging than what Naomi Watts had to do, I guess. And that by 2006, Laura Dern is a very famous actress. I mean, not as famous as she has become with the regrettable hashtag Dernissance, but (laughs) yeah, by 2006, she's certainly quite famous. And this is her third film with Lynch. So she's, he, he's a director who she is often associated with, but for three hours to be tasked with, either performing nervous collapse or a psychotic break and having to inhabit at least four different personae. I mean, that, that is, that is quite a challenge for even, you know, the most well-seasoned performer Yeah, and all working on a, on a script that was never really finished that largely operated by free association. Yeah. It's almost a screenplay. That's like a game of, exquisite corpse you know mm-hmm. and, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean from from her perspective because uh, i mean you quote at one point he's is more or less saying well i'd shoot one scene and i'd have mm-hmm. another idea and i'd shoot another one mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's it, it's like some yeah it's some infernal version of boyhood or something you know <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and yeah to to achieve any kind of continuity of that it's that's almost a parody of the production process for an actor um, right who has to uh, maintain the character's you know integrity uh, or just you know wholeness uh, right in the betrayal right Um, and and then yeah she's playing multiple characters i mean i guess just for the sake of of a listener who hasn't seen it uh which uh you know god bless but you know it's maybe just the starting point because i I don't think we could i'm not even sure it makes sense and that's part of what i also want to talk about is the challenge of writing a book about a movie where describing the plot which is you know the the initial task of 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 any studying something just kind of what is in front of us Mm -hmm. is you know (laughs) it's baffling it doesn't it resists that It, it pushes back against that the, the starting point for the film is that Dern plays a yeah an established actress we know because she's living in this kind of almost amusing vision of, of a mansion with with servants, mm-hmm. um, and, which for some reason is down the street from or 
someone who claims to be her neighbor, mm-hmm. by Grace mm-hmm. Christie. Mm-hmm. And that, and she is about to get a role. She's not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fairly uh, shortly, she is, you know, engaged in rehearsals, table reads, uh, and then uh, shooting with Justin Theroux as, I don't know, the other half of some story involving a film. Right. The, the film that they're shooting, Laura Dern's character, the actress that she's playing, is uh, named Nikki Grace. When she gets the part for the film, the film is called On High and Blue Tomorrows, which is directed by a character played by Jeremy Irons. Justin Thoreau is her co-star in On High and Blue Tomorrows in the movie within the movie. Justin Thoreau's character has the rather salacious name of Billy Side. (laughs) And Laura Dern's character in On High and Blue Tomorrows is Susan Blue, I believe. I think Blue is her surname. So yeah, so you have Nikki Grace, Susan Blue... And then there's some kind of psychic rupture. And then the Nikki Susan character becomes one person who I call the avenging angel. And she is this bruised woman who presents this very long monologue to this mostly silent, highly ineffectual, bespectacled interlocutor. And then that avenging angel also seems to split off into another character who's also distinguished by a Southern accent, but who lives with her husband in this kind of rundown ramshackle house in what I think is the actual Inland Empire region of Southern California, but I'm not entirely sure. And so, yeah, within these at least four different characters, you know, when I was taking notes and reviewing and rewatching and even in the editing process, not always being entirely sure which persona was which. And then I just realized the best or the most honest thing I could do would be to acknowledge my uncertainty. Mm. Because I think, you know, to try to distinguish when exactly or who exactly Laura Dern is at any given moment in this three-hour nightmarish opus would be kind of foolish to, to, to insist on a certain delineated rigor that may not even be there would, would be to maybe betray the spirit of the film. I mean, the nature of this kind of daisy chained series of dreams or liminal realities uh, are that they are blurry. They do blur into each other. So yeah, delineation is exactly what you don't want to do. You don't right. want to clear things up. No, 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 no. I had this kind of dual question that would come into my mind. If I would ever think, who is she playing at this moment? I would actually think, no, it's about what is she playing? Yeah, yeah. It becomes a kind of emotional trapeze, just sort of going from one to the next. Um, and I, I mean, I can only imagine what it's like I also began to think of what the process of just filming that is for Laura Dern, because it is so much in close-up and tight close-ups that often, you know, cut off the crown of the head, I guess you'd say. Right. That are unflattering, distorting. Yeah. And, but being able to, to 
to project in, in that and, and just have to do that again and again, mm-hmm. that made it just seem more, even more virtuosic because yeah. I can never forget with actors that they're looking at this machine in front of them. Right. Right. Um, especially if you're doing a close-up like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when you were plotting the way through it, you know, what use was it to think of it as dreams versus fantasies versus, you know, stories that are kind of strung together because I guess one kind of inciting idea is that there was a gypsy tale that somehow is haunting it. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, well, and it's funny you should mention that because although as we have discussed and, and, and as we both agree quite heartily, Inland Empire is a terrifying film. Mm-hmm. There are also moments when it is really funny. Yes. And this part about the old world tale that crazy tale that's delivered by Grace Zabriskie, who plays the neighbor, that scene when she comes over and introduces herself to Laura Dern, that is a laugh riot. I, you know, you may need to have my girlfriend on your podcast, but (laughs) she will attest that for weeks, if not months, I was just reciting all of Grace Zabriskie's lines in that scene. And her wild middle European accent, because it's very funny yeah. and made, made even funnier by Laura Dern as, as Nikki Grace, just her aghast responses. But I'm sorry, to answer your question, which was how did I go about writing this small book about, about a film that's so, that works on such unpredictable, dreamlike logic? I knew that I could never and was never interested in trying to explain away the film. And so before I really began to get down to the writing, I had a list of questions or of themes that were interesting to me. One of the broader ones being about actresses in Hollywood. And then thinking, as I mentioned in in the monograph, Laura Dern as not just an actor, but also as a spokesperson. And as I began writing, a lot of it, like Inland Empire itself, was very free associative. And so I just began to realize the power and the beauty of the line space. Like I would write a couple of paragraphs to either develop an idea or maybe just raise questions some of which, perhaps even many of which, I can't really answer, but I felt the need to bring them up regardless. And then have a line space. Or I think there's a, in the book, there's a little glyph, like a little dot that indicates to the reader, all right, now we're going to go on to a different thread. That, to me, worked best. And I guess I, since we're talking about terror and nightmares and anxiety... When I was told by Annabelle that the length of these very handsome monographs, that it had to be at least 15,000 words. Now, for, for many writers, this is not long at all. But for me, somebody who has worked as a film journalist for a little over 20 years now, I, in my career as a film journalist, I don't think I'd ever written anything longer than 3,000 words. And m- most of my writing was in the... 800 to 1500 word range. And so I just remember feeling this terror of how will I be able to reach 15,000 words? 
this is going to be impossible. What am I going to say? And so that was also part of why the writing itself was free associative because I, the task was, all right, I have to write, my deadline is this day. I have this many days to do it. That means I have to write this many words a day. It was something as dull and pragmatic and systematic as that. And then, and I just thought, I can't, you, Nick Rapold, you have been a film critic and a film journalist for many, many years. You know that you could spend all day, all week, all month, just waiting for the muse to strike, for waiting for the, the, the best way to begin a sentence or a graph. And so to assuage that anxiety, I just, a thought came into my mind, I'd type it. If it seemed like there was more to say, I'd follow that. Sometimes the ideas worked and sometimes they didn't. So that was how I went about writing a woman manifesto on David Lynch's <laughs> Inland Empire. Yeah, well, I can't help but thinking, you know, I just, I just was quoting how you, you quoted uh, Lynch's method for shooting mm-hmm. Inland Empire. <laughs> there, are, there are points of comparison. <laughs> Perhaps, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not so bold as to compare myself with, <laughs> with, the, with the great David Lynch. Man, man from Missoula. Um, <laughs> I, what, what's great about that is, is, you know, having it in these uh, sort of sections is that you're able to kind of set off these little depth charges of, of introducing particular ideas or points of reference. Uh, and, you know, one thing that you bring up is the movie is about this story within a story. There's something being inside the story, a story mm-hmm. that is haunted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, naturally you bring up the Hollywood legends that are kind mm-hmm. of the, these, I mean, what do you call them? Like modern fairy tales, yeah. cautionary tales, uh, sure. the, the Black Dahlia, right. um, Elizabeth Short. Um, mm-hmm. And that I thought was a really good reminder because I think people also just forget about that. Uh, and I mean, at least until we get, once in a while, someone remembers it and does a kind of awful movie about it. I, I had a flashback <laughs> to Hollywood Land. Did you, did you remember that one? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> I sure do remember that. Yeah, just a very turgid uh, film. So I, I like having that that kind of point, and it also made me kind of think of other attempts to to kind of tell the legend behind Hollywood. Have you have you seen this movie recently, The Legend of Lila Claire, with Kim Novak? Yes. Oh, oh yes, a great favorite. <laughs> yes. A great favorite. Um, one of it was part of Al- Robert Aldrich's Stardom trilogy, right? Which is whatever happened to Baby Jane. The Killing of Sister George and The Legend of Lila Claire. I think that's the trilogy. Yeah, I kind of like The Legend of Lila Claire. It comes to mind whenever I see, you know, watching something that's that's about the dream slash nightmare of, of mm-hmm. Hollywood. Well, and there's also, if if I may add on to that, there's always for me, there's always something. Whenever Kim Novak is in a movie, that just gives it a thousand more layers of poignancy. Because yeah. when I was in graduate school taking a class with the great Wayne Kustenbaum. He was teaching a really terrific seminar on Warhol. And I remember writing a paper for him about Candy Darling modeling herself on Kim Novak. So in my, I, did, I did a lot of Novak research, including probably watching The Legend of Lila Claire two or three times. But Kim Novak has always struck me as being... I mean, I think she was one of the last stars of 
she kind of came at the tail end of the studio era, one of the last stars built up by Columbia before Harry Cohn, who I'm, I have no doubt did untold horrible things to her before Harry Cohn signed her to Columbia. She became somewhat famous. For, she, she went around the country touring, modeling refrigerators and, and in her role as a refrigerator, refrigerator spokesmodel became known as Miss Deep Freeze. So I, (laughs) and I mean, she's, she was never the best actress, but the effort that she puts into it, I find very moving. And I always think of her as, yeah, one of the last great manufactured stars. Yeah. Part of it also just seems that there is an, an angst in her portrayals that mm-hmm. sort of comes through whether or not she's she's performing it. I mean, th- there's just something in, in, inherent to, to it. And part of what makes, you know, Vertigo so unnerving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just have to say, I'm so glad. I had no idea that you had studied with Wayne Kostenbaum. Because I have, I swear to God, in front of me, I have here Wayne Kostenbaum, Jackie Under My Skin. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh... <laughs> Wayne Kustenbaum has really one of the most influential people in my life. Having the, the sheer joy of taking seminars with him during my, I will admit, very benighted career as a graduate student. Yeah, he just really showed me and my classmates other ways of writing, of appreciating, introduced us to so much, and continues to be a tremendous influence and inspiration. It's wonderful. I mean, I, I, cause I thought of it, that's what came to mind when I was reading some of the uh, passages where just the being able to kind of hold something up to the light and, and turn it mm-hmm. in different directions and, and, and look at whatever signifiers come to mind or, or, right. or all the other ways of thinking through and about and around things. Yes. That's a very custom, custom Baumian strategy, yeah. a custom, <laughs> custom Baumian approach. Yeah, um, and I guess I came I came a little late to his writings. I know I guess the Queen's Throat is kind of a mm-hmm. more famous book, but I, I I couldn't turn it. One I remember coming across Jack Under My Skin in a, in a bookstore in, in college, just the, the green cover. So I grabbed it. Um, also interesting. While I feel like I'm just becoming free associative, which is fine. Yeah, um, but same for me actually. Uh, I don't know if I told <laughs> you, but I am a, a, a grad school emigre uh, or, <laughs> or fugitive. <laughs> We had to flee, Nick. We could no longer resist the siren call of film journalism. Exactly right, because because we wanted to go from one, you know, totally unstable. <laughs> yes. Calling. Yes, because I wanted to make untold riches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Glamour, gold, and glory. That's right. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I always find it comforting to find another. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I ran hard and fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Lynch, uh, has, has he has he written about Lynch? I, I, I should look up because I, I'd be curious. I don't know. That is a good question. I really don't know. Yeah. Reading the book, I, I began to think that some of the associations and references that Lynch makes are dreamlike in the sense that I can't think, it's almost impossible somehow for him to be consciously you know, making all these, all these references or through lines, you know, it's just sort of a, a language for him. It's not, mm-hmm. 
he's not like he plot. It never feels contrived because it's just it just sort of comes out of him to think through the world this way. Well, I mean, I don't know if this was written about maybe Ted Friend's New Yorker piece on Lynch around the time of Mulholland Drive, or maybe when Mulholland Drive the movie came out. But after ABC put the Knicks on the Mulholland Drive TV pilot, and Lynch didn't know what to do, he had his daily TM session. And again, I, I believe I'm remembering this story correctly. You may have to fact check me. But during a TM session, it came to Lynch within that one sitting about how to revive the scuttled pilot. He was able to call some French producer who had been a big supporter of his. And that was how the TV pilot became the film. Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, this is somebody who is famous not only for being a great filmmaker, but has become very famous and now seems to be devoting a lot of his time and resources to transcendental meditation. So yes, anybody who's, whose practice has been as influenced as his has been by a daily meditation practice, so much seems to come from the unconscious. I mean, I, I do not practice meditation. I know just a very little about TM, but... No, no, of course, yeah. You know, you asked earlier, what's it like coming to the movie again? And for me, I sort of had a different perspective on his, wow, I hate the word, obsession with menace. Mm -hmm. I began to think about that. And because it's something that he establishes so early on in his movies, the sense of, you know, some evil just around the corner Mm-hmm. that is is haunting our world and mm-hmm. sometimes it ends up being personified in these semi-grotesque ways with, with with a gangster or some kind of syndicate of some sort mm-hmm. and i don't know i'm just curious what would you make of that i mean in this case i think maybe storytelling itself mm. you know that line there's something inside the story when jeremy irons is explaining to justin throw and laura dern why on high and blue tomorrows is cursed i think he's the it's jeremy irons character who says yeah that there's something inside the story which it's just strange and provocative line and dennis Lim talks about this so beautifully in his really extraordinary book on david lynch that came out in 2015 the man from another place where dennis talks about a truly terrifying experience he had watching Inland Empire in Lynch's screening room. And Dennis talks quite a lot about feeling that that line, that that there's something inside the story. Just if you start to think about that while watching Inland Empire, how it can just, it can feel as though everything in the world, no matter how benign it may seem on the surface, has this sinister power just lurking underneath. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, Inland Empire is a story about an actress. Inland Empire is a story about movie making. Movies are all about stories. Where many movies are made is in Hollywood, a place that has some of the darkest, most dismal stories attached to it, some of which were unearthed during the... Harvey Weinstein scandal, some of which still taint Hollywood, 
I mean, I mentioned Fatty Arbuckle and that scandal in in the monograph. And there was a piece in the New Yorker just last week or two weeks ago about the the Arbuckle case and how just and the Black Dolly, as you mentioned earlier, and Elizabeth Short and you know Kenneth Anger's <laughs> uh, incomparable, probably mostly false, but still. <laughs> but still uh, essential Hollywood Babylon books, that there is just this sick legacy attached to a place, to an industry that has dominated our lives for more than a century. Both the stories that it tells and the stories that surround it. It's, uh, yeah, if if you really think about there's something inside the story. Yeah. That's that's especially the case when you're talking about Hollywood and what it manufactures. Yeah. And and at the same time, what was also kind of entrancing me watching it was Lynch's, you know, evident fascination with the moment of filmmaking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. those moments when the actor becomes the character, um, which are... It, it's kind of one of those scenes that are never persuasive when other filmmakers are trying to get it, get it across the kind of mm-hmm. magical performance. But when Laura Dern is there and they're doing is on screen doing the table read and yeah. there's a split second where you can't tell yeah. whether she's reacting to, to something Billy side or something uh-huh. about him or the character. And that's just the way he just holds on that. And I guess that also, kind of echoes the power of the ingenue you know, you breakthrough scene you described earlier. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Just that something is happening, something beyond what's happening, that something about that, this magic moment. Yeah, <laughs> no, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, I don't, I can't think of, there are some filmmakers who, I, I think of Olivier Asayas is a filmmaker who mm. is very good at that, like an Irma Vep, mm-hmm. uh, also in Clouds of Sils Maria. Those films are also very good about the Hall of Mirrors when Mm -hmm. actresses, specifically when female performers, actresses are playing other actresses. But I I really think the the quintessential filmmaker who does that is Lynch. Absolutely. Those those moments of not being able to separate the real performer, like Laura Dern from Susan Blue or Nikki Grace from Susan Blue. It's 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 incredible that being the moment where you're drawn in and then he's constantly doing this thing where you're thrown off then when, when the Mm -hmm. reality comes in. And I I also wanted to talk a bit about just the visual quality of the movie, his first shooting on digital Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. the digital that we know mostly now, the kind of gleamy, you know, one time red now, I guess various forms of Alexa where many people just think it actually looks even better and I have no complaints. This is still a bit of a, you know, by turns kind of gritty or muddy or glassy or mm-hmm. any number of terms that make you feel like you're not, you're somehow distanced from it a, a little bit. But at the same time, it's gritty. It's this weird, I, I always ping pong when I, when I talk about digital because the cliche is that it's more immediate in some ways, but also it's it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your feelings about the digital side of, of this movie and that and his decision to, to go with that, which might have just partly been monetary, but especially based upon how it was made? Well, if I'm remembering what he said, I think in Dennis Lim's feature on Inland Empire that ran in the Times, you know, around the time the, the film was released in New York, which was late November, early December of 2006, 
I believe Lynch does talk about, you know, the absolute freedom that he had with working in digital. And that was, you know, a huge asset, the liberation he felt. Uh, and yeah, and I mean, I do think there were some financial constraints as well. But the word that keeps coming into my mind is dank. You know, mm. it is a dank film. Right. And using, you know, a consumer digital camera, nothing fancy at all, is going to give you a dank, dark, sinister look to your film. <laughs> you know, in, in a way that 35 millimeter or the dancing grains of 16 millimeter never would. Yeah. And, and it's almost when he's, he's working with the medium, he's then immediately open to, you know, how it seems to let in new demons mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to kind of think of it. And, you know, again, something inside his story. Mm-hmm. Something inside the video camera. Something inside the video camera. Yeah. You know, one of, this is a movie which has, uh, it makes use of his bunny mm-hmm. sitcom. Right. <laughs> um, which ran on his now no longer extant, website davidlynch.com right. yeah the bunny scenes which is this funny sitcom it's like it's a surveillance video on hell or something mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so it's interesting he has a kind of ancestral memory of what digital might be used for which is also just yeah that kind of surveillance quality to it digital will be used to always remind us of what hell <laughs> or the exurbs of hell look like yes i think at the time it I think it kind of played up the sense that this was a very personal project. Oh, and also, I, you know, we can't neglect to mention that another impetus for the project was he really wanted to work with Laura Dern again, because it had been, I think when, this, when they first discussed this project, it was maybe 2003, 2004, and they hadn't worked together since Wild at Heart, which came out in 1990. So it had been over a decade. Yeah. I mean, they stretch out a pretty big canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of he made made the most of it. She is a fabulous performer, but I find there seems to be a special kind of alchemical magic when she collaborates with Lynch. Yeah, and you know when she made Blue Velvet when she was still a teenager, that really kind of launched her launched her career in a way, but. It's such an audacious performer by somebody so young. Hmm. I don't know. They just seem to have a really incredible way of communicating with each other that I don't know. For as much as I enjoy her work with other directors, but the caliber of her performances in Lynch films or the kind of acting that she does in Lynch films, her other work doesn't, for me, quite reach that level of being so surprising and unpredictable from scene to scene. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, almost because the quality that she brings to other, other, her other roles, especially in television, is a, is a sense of ease, I mean, in a way. It's yeah. Almost, it's almost the exact opposite. Y- y- yes, for sure. I mean, yeah, Inland Empire is a much different stratosphere than Big Little Lies, like <laughs> one could say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, I've taken us a little over time, but um, it, there's a lot of movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nick, I have to salute you. I feel that you, you asked really great questions and 
you know, you allow me to talk about my anxiety and reaching a word count. I was able to talk about my herstory as a grad school dropout. <laughs> we talked about the film and about my own woman's journey. There's just really no better way to honor Laura Dern or Inland Empire. <laughs> in, in, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it just really is a book that it just sends you back to the movie and you kind of go between the two. You know, I, it took me a while to finish the book simply because I was going <laughs> back and forth. Um, so I, I, I like that quality of it as well. Fantastic. All right. Well, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask the kind of traditional question on, on this, this podcast, which is right there in the title. So I can't say it in warn you, but what was the last, uh, last movie you saw? The very last film I saw, not even 24 hours ago, was Jacques Rivette's Noir, which I saw at BAM last night at 7 p.m. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's good to have the timestamp. Yeah, Monday, October 18th, BAM Cinema 2, 7 p.m. <laughs> in, in the same universe. Oh, yes. And again, we have to... Uh, Really salute Mr. Dennis Lim and Mr. Dan Sullivan at Film at Lincoln Center, who put together that terrific yes. Lynch Rivette series in 2015, which yes. really blew my mind and I know expanded the cinephilic horizons of, of many other spectators who were lucky enough to catch that series. Yeah, yeah, very productive, <laughs> very productive pairing. Yeah. All right, well. This is a November release, right? Yeah, I think the, the official publication date of the book is November 1st. I guess it ends up being a, a Halloween <laughs> episode. Oh, good. Trick or treat, <laughs> podcast listeners. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Inland Empire, Fireflies Press. Um, Melissa, thank you. I hope you. I hope you'll come back. Always happy to rap with you, Nick Rapold. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>